You're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We are your hosts, Sarah Cho and Sam Collier, and today we are so excited to have on the show Darcy Parker Bruce. Darcy is a playwright, theater activist, and coffee enthusiast, and a graduate of the MFA playwriting program at Smith College. Their play Soldier Poet was awarded AFA's 2018 Judith Royer Award for Excellence in Theater. Darcy has also written Always Plenty of Light at the Starlight All Night Diner, a beautiful play that I love, which is available through Broadway Play Publishing, and The Place That Made You, which is the second play in the Piedmont Cycle and is forthcoming from the same press. Darcy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. We're so excited to talk to you. So um, since we're called Beckett's Babies and we like to talk about being babies, um, (laughs) we always start with earliest memories. So tell us what's the first thing you remember before you ever heard about theater? Yeah, thank you. Um, We had a dog named Bruno. Um, So in our last (laughs) name is Bruce. So we had a dog named Bruno Bruce. Um, And I remember Bruno. Uh, She was a black dog, like a a retriever mix. Um, And I remember that we had books everywhere and lots of radios. Mm. Lots of radios and books. Oh, lots of radios. Mm. Would you remember what was playing on the radios? Yes, depending on which parent. Um, My mom... (laughs) was yeah my mom was like big like rock and roll like um mm-hmm. like anarchist rock and roll and then my my dad at that time was still in the house was a uh, big classical music I don't really know what was going on there but oh that's <laughs> like, such a fun juxtaposition yeah we were kind of all over the place but it was yeah it was definitely interesting um and car talk I listened to a lot of car talk oh my gosh yes I definitely have an association with early childhood and car talk. Mm-hmm. What's car talk? <laughs> it's, um, it's this NPR show uh, with these two brothers. They were uh, Click and Clack, the Tappet brothers. Mm-hmm. And, and they were from like, Boston. Oh, were they? I love that. I so. um, yeah, I remember I had to listen to it like illegally, like it wasn't allowed. It wasn't supposed to be listening. I don't know why it was car talk. Um, people would just call in. <laughs> And, like, they'd have a problem with their car. They'd be like, my car sounds like... And then the, the two brothers would try to figure out what the issue was. Yeah. Oh, such a good show. Yeah, that was so true. A big part of the show was people making the sounds of their cars. Yes. Um, I loved that part. <laughs> <laughs> so then how did you start, first start um, getting involved in theater? Tell us about your journey. Yeah, um, so I grew up, I've split my time. So I lived in the city till I was about 14, and then I lived in the country after that, um, the same town that I'm still in right now. Um, And when we were in the city, there was an outreach program called the Dwight Edgewood Project that Yale was doing, and my mom signed me up for it um, because... Mm. she says I was a theatrical child so <laughs> I, I can unpack that some other time um but yeah I I think that that she yeah she was like let's get you involved with this um and I was like six or seven I was very young no that can't be right maybe I was eight 
time. Um, but I was like, yeah, I was young and it was, we were paired up with um, Yale grad students and they would, they would either write the play for us one year or like the next year we would write for them and they would act in it. So we had like alternating years and um, it was like a bunch of kids from the same neighborhood. And yeah, I, that's amazing. I've just, there's always such a, my heart is like 70% like outreach theater because of this program. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Rick Morris who started it is still like someone who's in my life, which I really appreciate. So um, cool. Yeah, I love outreach theater. And we just, it was very much um, like backyard theater too, even though it was like a Yale program. It was like, you know, what can we make? <laughs> what can we, um, mm-hmm. how can we, how can we build it? Which I really loved. Um, I love that aspect of theater. Just remember. Do you painting. remember any of the, oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Do you remember any of the um, stories that you told in those plays, either ones that, one that you guys wrote or one that the Yale students wrote? Yeah. Yes. Um, one year I was a saber tooth cat that only had half a saber because I busted it breaking out of prison. I'm not sure. I don't remember why. Oh, <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, yeah. And then I wrote this play about that. these two brothers that were being chased by a monster. <laughs> That's all mm. I remember. Yeah. And you said um, Yale graduates would either act it out, or you would, or you and your peers would act it out. The plays yeah. were in. Wow. Yeah, they would either be like the YSD playwriting students would like write a ten minute oh. play, and we would be in it, um, or like vice versa, and they would act in it, which was so great. I remember it yeah. being a lot of fun. Yeah. And did that further your interest into pursuing? theater like in high school or um in college yeah definitely I yeah I think theater is like I think I tried on a lot of things and theater is the thing that fit the best um and I kept trying to come Mm. back to it I think I definitely like like probably like a lot of folks like people told me not to pursue theater so like I always gave it like a really good attempt um (laughs) it's like I'm gonna go take some history classes but I would always come back um and like have the (laughs) the credit classes that like don't count towards your degree like my family be like why are you taking more theater classes um (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, definitely uh ignited a passion in me for sure that's so cool so yeah so tell us how you um got into writing plays and um you know when you couldn't continue on as a history major uh, and decided to be a playwright. Um, What did the kind of beginning of your journey look like? Yeah. um, So I did graduate with a BA in history, which. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. I didn't super know what to do with. Um, I did. um, I did a lot of work in basements for free. Um, I did a very short stint at the Yale Library of Ornithology. <laughs> like for like a week. Cool. <laughs> I was like, I can't do this. Yeah. Um, I was like a volunteer. Um, and it was all it was all very cool. Like a lot of dusty basements. And I think the only paid work I was offered was like um, a traveling pirate exhibit. Which, if I was more of an actor, I would have taken. Um, <laughs> but I think it scared me at the time. Mm. Uh, but yeah, like you could dress up like a, you were supposed to dress up like a pirate. It was like a living history pirate. Wow. Uh, situation. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, and then like, yeah, after that, I think I took like one class at um, Eastern uh, Connecticut State University, which is where I went to undergrad. That was um, another theater class that I didn't really need, but we, we wrote plays and I don't know, I had a, a talk with my professor like one night and she was like, did you know like playwriting is a career? And I was like, no. Like, I knew people did it, but I didn't know you could, like, do it. And she's like, yeah, what if you went to grad school and, like, wrote more plays? Um, and, yeah, I think that yeah. was, like, kind of the affirmation. It was, like, just nice to have an adult say to me, like, this thing that you mm-hmm. seem to want is actually something you can have. So that mm-hmm. meant a lot. Yeah. And then I applied to grad school, and, I mean, I wrote – I was writing then, it took me a couple of years to get into grad school, so I was writing in between. Um, and it, I remember back when I first got into playwriting, I thought, I would. I was like, how do people write anything longer than 10-page plays? <laughs> like, how are people doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and now I've, like, completely flipped. I'm like, how do people write 10 That's, like, such an art. It's a very, like, fantastic <laughs> yeah, so talent. True. Yeah. So to just distill something down to be so small and still complete is yeah, yeah really a skill. Yeah, I'm like And then so what was your experience like in grad school? A lot of our listeners I think are maybe thinking about applying to MFA programs, so it's always good to hear mm. about different programs and what people's experiences were like. Mm. Yeah, I went to um I went to Smith and I'd never like been to a college like Smith before so that was really unique um the I think the the greatest gift that I got from Smith was there was just like a lot there were a lot of folks who because theater was a major so I mean there was a big community um of undergrads who were like interested in being involved with like the graduate program and then there was just a lot of space like space and time I guess grad school is Mm -hmm. is a gift in that way that like I um yeah, I think you're always kind of, especially once you graduate, you're always like, how do I get back to like that, the bliss of academia? And academia certainly is very complicated, but um, yeah, the, the bliss of having um, so much space and time to develop and write. Isn't um, Len Berkman over at Smith College? He is. I love like, Len Berkman so much. Oh. We love him. We love him. Oh my gosh. How do you, how do you guys know Len? So he is like uh, every year, at least that we were at Iowa and for many years before that came to the new play festival and to give feedback on our yes. plays. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like an institution of the <laughs> Iowa new play festival. I love that so yeah. much. Yeah, he is. There is no one in this world like Len Berkman. And I love that. Great socks. Just so generous and yes. kind and enthusiastic. Socks. Yes. And such yeah. good socks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the coolest socks. <laughs> and Converse shoes. Um, cool. What what excites you? Like, what types of plays do you love to write? Hmm. I I love impossible theater. Um, I really like theater that does strange, very specific backflips for the stage. Um, like really exciting. Oh my gosh! Like Kira Hudes is one of my favorite playwrights. Um, I love Water by the Spoonful. Uh, which is yeah the second play in the yeah. Elliot trilogy, oh, yeah. um, where you've got this character of a soldier who's Elliot who is haunted like literally by this like ghost that's a metaphor for his trauma. I've just I've never seen just the execution. Um, I love yeah impossible stuff. I love ghosts. 
Um, I love when, yeah, Sarah Rule does some really amazing stuff, like making elevators rain, you know, or like paper fall from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, every time pe- I like when people break rules. So, um, yeah, things that are outside of realism. Um, all the fun questions are outside of realism. Yeah, like something that can't happen on a, in a film. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it can, but it would be different than, than in a theater. Um, well, so you mentioned um, that trilogy, so and you've written the Piedmont cycle. So I'm wondering if you can talk about writing this sequence of interconnected plays and how that started for you. I've always kind of um, thought that would be so cool and to to write a, a series of plays, but also it seems so intimidating. <laughs> so how did you do it? Yeah, thank you. Um... I kind of couldn't stop writing. I was very, I'm very like into these characters. I don't like if that sounds like egotistical, mm. but like I'm just like really obsessed with these characters. <laughs> um, I, I didn't, I also didn't know I had permission. Like mm. I wrote two plays that were, I thought, I actually wrote Soldier Poet first and then Place, which is the sequel, um, but didn't actually know it was the sequel at the time. So I think I was just trying to write this independent play, mm. but I wasn't, I couldn't figure it out. And I remember it was actually the last. Uh, theater thing I did really before the pandemic um, I was at the Lambda retreat and Mfuniso Adofio was our mentor for the, the playwright cohort um, and I think she because she's written a cycle of like eight plays like and, and I love it and I just like she she really like kind of hammered home she's like you know you can just do it <laughs> like this is a thing like you can make a series and like maybe what's happening like maybe the reason you feel stuck is because there's more story um, to mm. investigate so yeah, I don't know. It was just like so much bigger. I, th- I think, yeah, I think I remember when I was like, oh, like I, I do actually, like I was halfway done with place and I was like, I actually do want to make this like, I think more of the story of Soldier Poet, but I just don't know, like, is that something I can do? And like, yeah, having um, Vanessa just be like, uh, yeah, <laughs> just do it. Mm. Um, it was really helpful. But I wanted to, um, I also really wanted to explore. And then like, I think, the darkest part of the pandemic for me was when I realized that this was a four-play cycle because um, I was I had a really hard time during the pandemic um, with like family structure. Like I am at a place where I like mm. I know I want kids, I know I want to start a family. But, like you know I'm queer, and then you know life is shaped very strangely. So I think at the darkest part, I was like, oh, am I ever going to have these things? And like how would they manifest? And mm. so I was like, I'm just going to like mm. try to map that and play because you know everything right now is so uncertain. So maybe maybe if I like visualize it, it'll be kind of a bomb. So I think for me, it was like a lot of- I love that. Oh, thank you. Like I was just working on wounds. I was like trying to, to self-soothe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I really hear that. And I think like, um, I remember somebody saying to us at Iowa that like the first play everyone writes is about their family which I didn't agree with because I was like, that wasn't true about me. But I, I think there's something about writing plays about family where everyone who writes a family play is kind of trying to either soothe themselves, you know, or like yeah. envision uh, envision the possibilities of what they want to create in their own life. And um, there's something really kind of therapeutic about writing that kind of play. Yeah, mm. I love that. 
please. <laughs> Art. Please. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned about the pandemic and if you can just, um, if you don't mind, but like how has the pandemic changed the way you think about theater and you know, what would you like to see happen in the next few years? <laughs> oh man. Uh, I have so many big thoughts. I just keep coming back to, I, I really, I've noticed like some, some theaters kind of shifting to more, um, like reciprocal community building theater giving long wharf here in new haven is doing it um where there's just more of an intentional kind of going out into communities it's like kind of bread and puppet um you know kind of making themselves more accessible Mm -hmm. doing sliding scale you know ticket prices really calling in new artists who are who are starting conversations that people in the community are like interested in engaging in um yeah, theaters that are kind of breaking down their model. I guess that's like super exciting to me, especially like mm. we've been through this pandemic. We understand that, you know, there's like two sides, right? Is it like resource scarcity or like, do we have plenty of resources if we kind of team together? And so I like thinking about theater in a way that isn't as like starkly monetized, I guess. Like I know that money still exists, yeah. <laughs> you know, it kind of has to flow, but um, yeah, it's super exciting for me when folks are doing uh, theater that is just accessible at all levels and really like questioning what that what that means and, and like how we can play in that and not feel like just because we don't have a standard theater of like, you know, donors or, you know, a, a board of folk like who are making decisions, like how do we like keep it as fluid as possible? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So instead of theater is like this institution that people have to like you know, knock on the door, like, you know, just kind of becoming more of a integrated part, like, like everybody's functioning together, you know, I guess that's Mm -hmm. crude. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. But I think I've been thinking a lot about how that would look like, just like, if that's a model that can, that like theaters across the country can engage in and benefit from. No, I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, I think it is most simple level theater is just you know people pretending to be other people and you really don't need to have a whole bunch of fancy spaces or equipment to make that happen Mm -hmm. um yeah I think that's great yeah I saw a tweet the other day where someone said um if theaters were still charging like over 25 dollars or something to stream the, the show still hasn't learned about like equity or like mm. accessibility because <laughs> yeah. um, I was just like thinking I was like like I don't know like if you like there should there's no cap on numbers of, like how many people could come in and like live stream mm. is there I don't mm-hmm. think so I mean you're not gonna get thousands of people I doubt it but um but just like charging it in a reasonable amount like if you can stream unlimited shows on netflix for like 15 bucks a month i was just like and i don't know i don't know i just feel like it shouldn't be over 25 dollars 30 dollars yeah well it's just that the flip side of that of course is like are people getting paid to make Mm -hmm. the work yeah Yeah. i mean like i feel like you could have two options you could have a live right Mm because there's a lot in person and pay the full ticket price whatever you charge but then you know, people who are streaming from another state could yeah, watch yeah. for, you know, 10 bucks. Yeah. Um, 
but that's something I was like, I saw the tweet and it made me think about in terms of accessibility. Because now we have all the tools. Like now right. we're learning about how live streaming yeah. and um, technology is working. So I thought that was something that reminded me. Um, that's great. Yeah. Cool. We need more federal funding. That's what we need. Well, yeah. Less, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Less yeah. Uh, war machine, more. It's so true. <laughs> more theater. It's so true. Is there, um, you said you're from Connecticut, right, mm-hmm. Darcy? Yeah. Are you currently based? Yeah. Um, is there, is there like arts funding in Connecticut? Because California just started doing it. I guess they reopened for the arts, funding for arts, and you can apply for oh, grants. Oh, cool. That's awesome. But it's something that they did 30 years ago, and then they like cut it and shut it down. I think it was during oh, when Schwarzenegger. Oh, sure. <laughs> I think when he was governor, I think he like cut all funding. I know wow. California. Um, and then, but I think they just reopened it during the pandemic too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was kind of I was curious if Connecticut had some, something like that. That's great though that LA is bringing it back. Um, we we do. They're generous here. Um, Connecticut Office of the Arts uh, does offer like several rounds of grants per year and a lot more institutions like New Haven Public Library. I think is just offering a twenty five thousand dollar grant for. Um, artists, wow. arts administration, forwarding, like there are ways to kind of link everything together. Um, and I know I just, did, did you all see like New York is offering like a, a living stipend or it's like not enough to live on, but like they're trying to move cool. in that direction, like a thousand dollars a month or something for artists. Oh, I think I saw something like that. Yeah. 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 So Connecticut's awesome. um, generous, but yeah, it'd be really awesome to get to that point. Like, um, like how in a couple of European countries, you kind of can just be, you can apply and, yeah, do the artist mm. thing. <laughs> cool. Well, let's talk about um, development processes for plays because you've developed your plays um, in a few places and, um, of course, had gone through rehearsal processes for production. So um, I'm wondering if there's anything you really love to see happen in that kind of process that helps you get to the next draft. Um, we had a recent episode about working with dramaturgs and we're thinking about what's useful when working with a dramaturg, but also just to open it up um, in general, what is helpful for you when you're developing a new play? Yeah, thank you. Um... I have a dramaturg I work with. Shout out to Heather Holinsky. I love her so much. Um, oh, yay. Six years ago at Great Plains. Um, I would say, yeah, having a dramaturg is just so, it's a total gift. Um, and being in the rehearsal room, like having all of those other folks working with the work, um, like director questions, actor questions. Questions are my favorite thing in the whole world um, because... I don't know, like I get stuck writing plays, like you get, you kind of like get really narrow in on it. So like having all the the other voices who are like able to ask things that you just like couldn't see, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think like what I love, what I love in a rehearsal room is like when we've been with the material for like long enough that folks, like it feels like everybody's living in the same place, right? You know, like the first like couple of days you're getting into a script or whatever, you're like the first couple of weeks you're getting into rehearsals everybody's still kind of learning how to get there. And then there's a moment where you're like, okay, we all live in the same place. I don't know. And then you feel like, Mm -hmm. okay, 
now I think I understand it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to hear you say that because it, it really takes time, doesn't it? It's not it something does. that can be rushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does. Um, but it's good. Yeah, actors. Oh, my God. Actors. Thank God for actors and technicians and directors. Like, everybody is going to come to the play with such a different perspective of what, you know, what equals this place. And everybody's different version of it is, like, just fundamental, I think, in that growth. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious about your writing process. Like, are you... Um, type of person that like just take notes or you like do you like to outline cards or um yeah I'm so curious about how you write yeah I used to be a total what do they call them plasters and pantsers I always get this wrong <laughs> um, I used to be a total pantser <laughs> yeah <laughs> just throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall and be like what's sticking um but now I'm like old and easily disoriented so I like to make a timeline, kind of like a (laughs) very loose skeleton for myself to follow. I do like a little bit more mapping now, I guess. Um, So I'll try to like just sit down and know beginning, end and like the scenes. Um, Yeah. And what everybody's trying to like get to or figure out. Um, And I start with thesis questions Mm -hmm. too, which I found are really helpful. Oh, interesting. Like you give, give yourself a question for this play that you want to, kind of exploring answering Mm -hmm. yeah usually it's like a a list of a couple questions and I'm like okay I don't need to figure out the answers by the end of the play but like this is this is what's up (laughs) like this is what I'm trying to oh I love that that's very cool yeah that's really cool what can you give us an example what's a question that you've started with for particular yeah I guess like for the Piedmont cycle it just was you know what do American soldiers think about America after they've been to war? Mm. Like, mm. Um, yeah. And then how do you, how do you come home after doing some, something so kind of out of the experience of the people who didn't have that, you know? So yeah. Or like, you know, how do we, how, what does family look like for Piedmont? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and you've also written about in your artist statement about um kind of queerness in rural areas, which I find so interesting as someone who has lived in a couple of very rural areas in the past few years. Um I it's so different from being a queer person in a city. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and how it informs your playwriting. Sure. Yeah, it is so different. Um it is, it is like always on my mind. Um, and I'm still, I'm still defining it for myself a lot, I guess. Um, but a big mm-hmm. part of it is just, yeah, outside of, I'm not, I haven't always been a city person. I really like, um, I like the country, I guess, like just quiet. I have like anxiety. So yeah. <laughs> cities can make me anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I yeah. think there was just a big, part of me trying to be queer trying to figure out that family thing like how do you occupy space that has kind of been like if there was like a line in the sand you know I feel like a lot of queer folk are like I'm just not gonna do that and like it's not always the safe it's not a safe place right and it's not a place where Mm -hmm. 
there is, you know, a, there's like a community um, in the way that you think of it, like if you're in a city. Um, but at the same time, I guess, and this is kind of what place goes into is like, how do you, what if, what if you feel like something belongs to you? Like, how do you occupy that? Even if it doesn't feel like there is a safe space, like, can you make one? Should you leave and go to a city? How can you, you know, still be a frog catching, you know, child of the woods? Yeah. Um, and also feel comfortable going into gas stations. Um, and I don't know if I know the answer to that question yet, but it is, it is something I think about a lot. How can you be a frog catching child of the woods and still feel comfortable going into gas stations? I love that. That's a thesis question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. All right. Um, so before we move on to glistens, um, this is a fun question we like to ask for uh, our guests is um, name three playwrights living or dead that you would invite invite to a dinner party Ooh, i love this question it's so hard too because there are so many um i want to call back kira hudes because uh, i absolutely just love her work mm. and i would love to just yeah just listen to her speak on her thoughts on theater um there's a playwright dana lynn formby who wrote a play called johnny ten beers daughter which i and i never think gets enough attention um and I love that play so much. And I would love to hear Dana's perspective on how that came to be. Um, and then I think I'm going to say his name wrong. So I'm so sorry because I've only ever read it. But Basil Kremendal, um, mm. Orange mm -hmm. Julius, Basil. which is just... Mm -hmm. Basil, thank you. Thank you. Basil Kremendal. Yeah, I... Um, yeah, those three at a table and just... I'll just like... Oh, good you group. Know, pass them the soup. Okay. <laughs> I can listen. <laughs> What kind of soup would you make? Ooh. <laughs> That's such a good <laughs> um, Lentil. Yeah. Mm. It's filling, but everyone can have a little bit. Yeah, so, a good group. Yeah, that's such a good group. So Darcy, what advice would you give to playwrights who are just starting out, maybe thinking about writing their first play, or maybe they've written one so far? Hmm. Ooh, okay. Um, trust yourself on form. Um, I think that there, like, there are a lot of hot takes on like uh, correct form for playwriting <laughs> and like what stage directions should be or look like. And I think it's true that you know it's good to know the rules so that you can break them. But like, break them <laughs> if that's the right choice for you. Um, yeah, just follow your instinct on the page. Um, and worry less about that while you're trying to figure out what, yeah, what, like, what your rhythm is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And experiment and play and, and make mistakes. I mean, who knows? Like, try it first. Because, um, like, you never know what that experimentation is going to bring us something totally new, too. So, play. So where can our listeners find you? I'm on MPX. New play exchange. Yay! <laughs> I love those guys. Awesome. I know. It's so great. Well, shall we move to Glistens? Yes. Ooh. So Glistens, um, 
is on the show where we just kind of point out highlights of the week, something that struck us. Um, it could be new music, a headline, a news headline, um, something you read, discovered. Um, so I'll start first. Um, I read the book Made by Stephanie Land. Have you heard of it? No. It's about this woman who just had a baby, like, baby and to survive, uh, she was a maid f- or cleaning houses for um, a large part of her life and, like, mm. sort of navigating uh, the system and, like, the government funding. Like, well, how does this all work? And, like, um, and kind of being forced in this mold of, like, oh, you know, she's afraid of, like, what other people think. You know, like, oh, my tax-paying money is going to this. Like, you know, she had this all this, like, mm-hmm. fears, what people mm-hmm. might think of her. But, like, also she had to survive. Like, she had a, a baby. She was a single parent. Um, when she was living in, like, rural Oregon, like, trying to figure this out. And it's so um, epic. And just, like, you really feel like you're in her shoes. Like, oh, my God. Like, she describes, like, cleaning this disgusting bathroom and, like, poop stains all over the toilet. Like, you're, like, it's so descriptive. And then it's just, like, you just feel her. Like, you just feel, uh, like, you're just with her and you're – she's like taking you every step of the way, like her experience during this very difficult time. So um, it was really good. It's so good. Um, I recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. My question is I, there's a sculptor here at CU Boulder who um, has her, she's an MFA student and her thesis work is this incredible sculpture called thawing web, which, um, is about or focuses on an ice cave in Colorado and the um, mm. this the seasonal changes, and she built this beautiful sculpture out of scientific glass, which is the kind of glass used in beakers and um, other I don't know laboratory equipment, um, and it's it's such a beautiful sculpture, and she just won this big. Um, award for it and she's going to go to the arctic circle and on a residency to keep studying um climate change so i just want to shout out to amy hoagland who made this beautiful sculpture what's your um what's your glisten darcy um yesterday i saw a headline in the newspaper that said that the U.S. Coast Guard was looking into replacing people on battleships with robots. Um, uh, and then I, and then I fell uh, over. <laughs> so that's been, um, yeah, that's been on my mind a lot. Like, what would that? Yeah, robot. fascinating. Robot Lots of questions. Is terrifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow, isn't that crazy? Um, that's just wild. Sam sent me this video of um, it was like a car, yeah, it was a, it was a self-driving car that gets pulled over by the police, and then they're like, and then, the yeah, the police officer goes around to the front of the car, and he's like, oh, there's nobody driving this thing, oh. and then they're like, what do we do? <laughs> and they like try to call the number that's on the car. Yeah, and, like, exactly. Wow. And I was just like, we what did this car do? It, it had its headlights were not on. His headlights were not working. Oh, so headlights were not working. They pulled it over, and then there was no driver. There's literally nobody in the car. What a paradox. <laughs> That's wild. So it's like, what do you... We're in a whole new world. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, in my neighborhood, there's these little, um, I think I meant, I don't know if I mentioned on the show, but um, there are these now robots that like delivers, they're the new deli- food delivery. Mm. They're like these little pink little bar, like little box cars. And I read online that they're actually being uh, remote controlled by people Whoa. actually oh and they're like it's kind of like video game they're like driving they're picking it up and then they're like taking it um i mean that's the ultimate remote job it's <laughs> like you're this robot they're driving <laughs> yeah. around but wow. yeah it's called coco and i just see it everywhere i see it everywhere um all over my really? neighborhood really yeah yeah they're like i see more and more of them every i think they were trying to replace like lyft and uber drivers you know food deliveries um delivers so mm. great so yeah. all these things start in la and then they just move across the country so <laughs> fascinating i'm sure they'll get to boulder mm. soon i wow. here's the thing i'm like i why i just feel like i haven't seen somebody like try to kick it or something i don't know <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like someone would try to like kick it and like i don't know hijack it or something um mm. But nobody yeah. is it goes pretty fast like they drive they're on the sidewalk they're only on the sidewalk but they drive really fast how oh big gosh. are they Ooh, they're like um they're they're pretty big but they're they're kind of like maybe i want to say you know those um like office boxes mm-hmm. they'll be a little bit just a little bit bigger than that so you have something like that barreling down the sidewalk towards you yeah mm. that's yeah. a bad idea yeah, and there's more than one. Like, think about that. There's like more than one. So I've seen, oh. I've seen people. They see it coming, and they're like, "Oh, like jump away, jump on the oh side god. to let it pass." Like, oh my god, what if it hits a cat or something? I mean, <gasps> I just, oh my god. I don't know. I just feel like I cannot be the only person who thinks this is a bad idea. It's yeah, yeah. I'm kind of waiting for. It. Like right now, people don't like the scooters. Like now, they're just everywhere. Those like electric scooters. Yeah, um, they're just littered all over oh my God. neighborhoods, like everywhere. No, nobody is like taking it where they're supposed to and charging it or like putting into designated areas. They're just like littered all like just over. Just leave them all over. Yeah, it's the same in DC. You, they, people yeah. just leave the scooters lying on the sidewalk all over town. Yeah, yeah. I have to like literally like when it, sometimes on the street, so I have to like get out of my car, like move it. I'm oh like, my gosh! You can't drive through this. Um, can't. Yeah, people. Huh. People city. You know what? I think we should take a page from Darcy and just move to the rural. Exactly. <laughs> this is why to the rural cities. Connecticut. The robots will find us here too, though. We <laughs> 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 are already here. Um, wild, wild. <laughs> um, well, well, it was such a nice time talking to you, Darcy. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a blast. Yeah, thanks for coming on our show. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, please be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.